Nice. I don't think it's ever been this high. <laughs> wow. I'm going to start looking at this the whole time instead of you guys. All right. Um, for the truck retreat tonight, if you have your trunk set up or are going to set it up, just head back over here ASAP after worship service. And we're doing it over here just, um, just so we, it's not just inviting everybody in, which obviously we would love to do, but trying to be cautious because of the virus this year. So take your, your car, go back over here. I, I've got to do it. My car's over here. So I'm going to be driving over here and park and set up. And then parents, if you will, kind of keep your kids inside for a little bit and let them set up as we're, we're all driving around, that kind of thing. Don't want to run it around too much outside. And then we'll head out there as soon as possible. So as we embark on, on our sermon tonight, this is, a, this is a big moment for you guys, because this is the last Sunday for a little while that you'll have to listen to me, because <laughs> Dennis, Dennis will be back next week. <laughs> so I know, at least I'm grateful for that, because I've never talked this much in my entire life, and <laughs> I know that y'all are also grateful for it. If not now, you will be by next week. Um, so so we're, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I know you guys are too. So we finally, we've made it to the end. So as we think about loneliness, and as we start to take kind of some of the principles from our passage this morning and apply them to our lives, and I hope to do a more general sermon um, sometime in the coming months about dealing with just discouragement in general from First Kings 18 and 19, so we'll build off of that there as well. But for tonight, as we talk specifically about loneliness, we have three things, uh, three R's, of course, that, that we're going to talk about and notice and apply some principles to our lives. But as we begin in that, I want to recall your mind to James chapter 5 and verse 17, where James said that Elijah was a man just like us, right? He's a man with a nature like ours. So like we said this morning, Moses, Mary, Elijah, they're just like us. They're, they're people who could walk into our auditorium and sit here. Now, you know, obviously, if Elijah walked into our auditorium, I'm, I'm going to sit down and he's going to stand up here. But just in general, right, they're, they're people just like us. But the thing about them is that even though they were ordinary people, they allow God to do extraordinary things through them, right? Those ordinary people let God use their lives, their ordinary lives, for extraordinary things. And that's how I want to be with my life. I want to allow this ordinary guy, I want to allow God to do extraordinary things through this ordinary guy. And so part of being an ordinary person is dealing with loneliness, right? Because we all deal with loneliness to one extent or another. And part of reaching that point where I'm an ordinary person who's, who God is working through to do extraordinary things is learning how to deal with that ordinary loneliness in an extraordinary way. So, in our goal of doing that, we have three things that I think, uh, that I think will help us to do that. There are three R's. The first one is a reminder. Like Elijah, sometimes we need a reminder. The first reminder, just, just two that we'll talk about. The first one is that we are with you. We are with you. In our world and in our church, it's become easier than ever not to emphasize friendship. So many of us live in this world where we have so many fake virtual friends that surround us and, and we look for our, our need to belong in them. And we miss out on real life, deep friendship. So if you're trying that, you've probably realized by now, and if not, you, you will realize someday, 
that's, that that is just not enough. Where all of the people in our culture are looking for friendship, we can't find it, at least not to the extent that we need it. Ronnie Ware is an Australian nurse, and she spent years caring for people on their deathbeds, people who, who were very, very close to dying. And she noticed that there were five common regrets that almost everybody has, at least one of them. Most people have several of them. So she wrote a book about them, five common regrets that most people have on their deathbeds. One of those regrets was not emphasizing friendship enough. When we get to our deathbed, when we are about to pass from this life, most likely one of our most common regrets is going to be that we wished we had had deeper friendships. We wish we had emphasized friendship more in our lives. And that's because foundationally, at our very core, we're like that. We need friendship because God made us this way. Like we said this morning, we are made in the image of God, right? So if he's making us in his image, we're made to be like him. And like we said, God is a communal being from eternity. He has existed with the three persons of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's existed with himself. And then also, obviously we're here, so he created us to have a relationship with him. So God has always lived in community, and he designed us to do the same. And that's why in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, he said, It is not good that the man should be alone. He said that because of what he said in chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, so it's not good for us to be alone because we are like God. We are made in his image. He made us with this, this built-in weakness, we might call it. Which means that that weakness is actually a good thing. And we'll get to that in a bit. But for now, let's just, let's just say that God planted this, this longing for friendship, for true friendship, in our DNA. None of us can be our, the best version of ourselves without deep, genuine, lasting friendship. Now, God knew that, and he provided for it. He gave us, among other things, his church to help us in meeting that need. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is maybe the main reason why it's, it's good for us to go to church, as, as we say, go to church, to physically, literally come together in this room. This is one of the main reasons why it's, it's good for us, not just that we should do it or that we have to do it, but is that, but that it's good to do it because God created us for people. And, and most especially, he created his people for his people. If you are one of his people, if you have been born again into his body, then you are one of his people, and he did that for others of his people. He created his people for his people to help us meet that need. So we all need to be reminded from time to time that none of us is alone. Not, not one single one of us is alone. We have each other. But also, even more importantly than that, he is with us. He is with us. Matthew 28 and verse 20. I will never leave you. Or Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. One of my friends who's, who's um, he, he's a preacher in Colorado. He's much more into Greek than, than I am. And he, he shared something with me this week that I wanted to pass on to you. He said that in the Greek text of Hebrews 13 and verse 5, uh, most of you know that, that the Bible was originally, the New Testament was originally written in Greek and translated into English today. So in the original Greek text, there are five words that negate the word leave. In that passage. So what it actually says is, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm right here with you. Like he says in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's with us. But not only is he with us, he's also in us. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is something that I think it's very easy for us in, in our cultural climate and, and just like in general where we are in the world today to de-emphasize. Because most of us don't have much of a spiritual aspect to our lives. We live in a very secular, very scientific society, which in some ways, living in a scientific society is definitely a good thing. But it can lead us to de-emphasize the spiritual aspect of our lives, to de-emphasize God's actual presence in our lives. And Romans 8 gets in that, that, that lack, and it stomps all over it. Because notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have God in you, you don't belong to God. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's almost as if God dwells in us. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19, Paul said, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So because God has bought us at a price, right? That's the next verse, verse 20 of first Corinthians six. He bought us at a price. We're not our own. Therefore, he dwells in us. We are his. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So not only is God with me, he's also in me. And and I don't know what all of that that means. As I was thinking um, about this concept, some of you know that the youth group went to Hot Springs this, this weekend for a youth event. And I asked some of the, the teens who were, who were with me in the van, like, have you ever thought about what, what it means that God is in us? Like, I have no idea all the implications of that. But it seems like it has to be huge that God himself lives inside of his people. If that doesn't change my life, I really don't know what will. But not only is he with us, not only is he in us, he also is us in some ways. What I mean by that is that Jesus may have been the loneliest person ever to walk the earth. He is us. He gets us. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's talk about it. Loneliness is what we feel when we are isolated from other people, right? That's what we feel when when we are lonely. Or when we are isolated. But a lot of the time, loneliness has less to do with the actual physical absence of other people and more to do with feeling disconnected from them and misunderstood by them and different than them. So loneliness is not so much about being alone. It's about being different or being unaccepted. In fact, that type of loneliness can be even more painful than just being alone. The type of loneliness where people, you're you're alone, not just because you are, but because people have actively rejected you to make it that way. Loneliness where it's not just because, it's not just because I don't have anybody to hang out with. It's because I know people who are hanging out, but they don't want me with them. I think we probably have all experienced that at some point in our lives. And if you have, then you know that that type of loneliness 
is another step from just being alone in a lot of cases. Because with that type of loneliness comes feelings of shame, feelings of exclusion, feelings of rejection. So listen to what the prophet says about Jesus. Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Have you ever thought about that? How Jesus Jesus was a man of sorrows. If you live a, a sad life in, in that you are sad a lot, remember Jesus was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. He, he knew grief. He knew what it was like to grieve. So imagine what living in this world was like for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us that Jesus never sinned, right? He, he never did what all the rest of us did or have done. He, he never sinned. Now that may sound like a pleasant problem to have. And in many ways, yes, right? We would all be better for it if we hadn't sinned in our lives. But I doubt it was only pleasant. Of course, it's a good thing not to have sinned, but I don't think it's only a good thing in his human experience because he was surrounded by people and demons and actions that were so very different than he was. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter wrote about Lot. And if you know about Lot, you know he was not an angel, right? Lot is not the best guy on earth. But Peter says, quote, that he was tormented day and day, day after day in Sodom, by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Even Lot, who was not a great dude, even he was tormented by the sin that was around him. Now, what was it like for sinless Jesus living in a sinful world? Imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to be a teen. If you're not a teen right now, and you most likely, most likely were a teen at some point, most of us in this room either are a teen now or were at some point. And so you know the struggle in that time of life especially of wanting to feel accepted, wanting to feel like you fit in, wanting to feel comfortable with people. And remember that Jesus was human, just like us. He longed for friendship, just like us. But he was very different than people his age, because he was very human, right? Jesus was 100% human, as we say. He was very human, but also he's Jesus. I mean, he, he's different, right? He's always going to be different. He's God with us, and he never sinned. He never messed up. So Jesus was very different. So at an age when everybody is trying to fit in and be accepted and be like everybody else, there was no possible way for Jesus to fit that mold. Even his parents, no matter how much they loved him, would never have understood him fully. Because how could they? How could you understand someone who is, who is, in his very nature, different than you are? And his siblings. Can you imagine having Jesus as a brother? Some of you grew up with siblings um, who made you jealous, right? So it seems like they could never do anything wrong. They were always succeeding in whatever they did, and your parents probably bragged on them a lot, and you felt lesser. Some of us in this room certainly have experienced that. Now, can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? You can never measure up. Nothing you did would ever be good enough. I mean, how could you match up with Jesus? And you know what that, you know what that breeds? It breeds resentment. It breeds jealousy. It breeds envy. And that might have something to do with what John 7 and verse 5 says, where John says that not even his brothers believed in him. Now, it seems that they did someday after his resurrection, Acts 1 and verse 14. But at least while he was on earth, his brothers didn't believe in him. Maybe playing into that with some of those feelings from years of comparing themselves with Jesus and not being able to match up. So Jesus was a sinless person living with sinful parents, sinful siblings, sinful relatives, sinful neighbors, and sinful disciples. Sometimes we feel alone in this world, but in a very real sense, Jesus was alone. 
No human being on earth could totally identify with Jesus. We know that Jesus cried, right? Multiple times in the Gospels, it's recorded that he's, he's weeping. And in those moments, no one could walk up to Jesus and put an arm around him and say, I know exactly what you're going through. Because they didn't. No one could understand him fully. But all of that, that life of, of isolation was just a precursor. It was just build up. It was just the previews before the movie. Because in one moment, Jesus experienced more loneliness than I think any of us ever will. It's the most lonely moment in the history of humanity. It's, it's the, the most supreme moment of loneliness, a moment so dark and deep that none of us have ever experienced it. It was the moment when, on the cross, he became sin for us, to use Paul, Paul's language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus spent his entire life feeling outcast because of his sinlessness. And then we get to this moment, and he's outcast because of the sin that he bore for us, our sin. He can't catch a break. He took that on himself, and in some sense, he let it come in between him and his father. Because Matthew 27, verse 46, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? Jesus experienced loneliness in a way that none of us can really comprehend. So in that moment, that was so lonely and terrible that we can't even begin to understand it. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 says that in that moment, his appearance was so marred, so messed up, he was beyond human semblance. In other words, he had taken such a beating, he didn't even look human anymore. He had spent his entire life feeling like an outcast, feeling like he, he didn't really belong here because he wasn't one of us. And then in that moment, the people that he had made made it very clear, you don't belong here. You don't even look like us. No one has experienced or understands the depths of loneliness like Jesus does. And because of that, he understands your loneliness and mine. And I think he understands it more than we do ourselves. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the most important person in the entire universe, or out of it, is not only with us, and he's not just in us, in some ways, he also is us. He gets us more than we ever possibly could. He understands us. Sometimes we need that reminder that not only are we with you, but he is with you. And he's in you, and in some ways, he is you. He gets you. But also, second, a repurpose. A reminder, a repurpose. Sometimes we need to repurpose our loneliness. Because loneliness is always going to be here, Right? In our broken, in our fallen world, we are always going to feel lonely. No, no, nothing and nobody is ever going to satisfy that need fully. Not marriage, not kids, not grandkids, not, not, uh, not a church family, not blood family, not friends, not, not worship. Nothing is going to satisfy that need fully while we're here on earth. 
that need won't be satisfied until we're in eternal fellowship with God himself and with his people. So instead of trying to get rid of it, because we're not going to succeed, we can minimize it, but we can never get rid of it. Instead of trying to do that, never to be lonely again, try to see loneliness in this life as a gift from God. As a gift from God. Just like hunger urges us to eat and thirst drives us to drink, loneliness can be a good type of pain. Loneliness can drive us out of the, of the gravitational pull of, of living for ourselves into a relational giving of ourselves for other people. It can show us that there's something higher in this life. So instead of resenting loneliness, it will bring us so much joy if we see it as a gift given to us by God. But how do we do that? How is that even possible? How does that even make sense? Well, it starts by realizing that nothing in this life will satisfy your needs fully, right? Like we just said, nothing in this life is going to satisfy our needs to be understood, to be accepted, to be embraced fully. I think those three words are the opposite of of feeling lonely, being understood, being accepted, and being embraced. If you have those three things, you're not lonely. But the thing is, we can't have any of those three things totally in this life, 100%. They can't be fulfilled until we get to the next life and we're in fellowship with God. We are understood and accepted and embraced by God in a sense that we can't be or we can't feel, at least, in this life, in this broken world. So when we're lonely, it's easy to believe that friends or family or a mate or a church family can fill that void and change that for us, right? That it can drive loneliness away. But that just isn't true. Adding a mate or family or friends can help and should help in feeling lonely, but it's never going to cure it. Something I've, I've learned in my super short period of time um, on earth that kind of changed my perspective on a lot of things is I, I was talking with my grandmother not too long ago, and she was married for most of her life, a uh, relatively happy marriage. But she told me that something that she had learned that took her a long time to learn and that she wanted to pass on to me was that some of the most lonely people on earth are married. Because marriage can and should help our loneliness. But if you're in a marriage where you don't feel understood, where you don't feel accepted, where you don't feel embraced, you can very easily become lonely in a sense or in a way that people who are single can't really feel. So some of the most lonely people on earth are married. And that isn't to to put marriage down because it's one of the greatest blessings that we have on this earth from God. But it's just to say that Nothing, uh, even the best of this life, leaves us wanting more. It leaves us wanting something longer. It leaves us wanting something better. And that's why in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, Paul says that he, he can't wait to depart from this life and to be with Christ. Why? Because that is far better in his words. So we should be glad that the best of this life leaves us wanting more, wanting what's coming in our future. Every loneliness on this earth is a built-in reminder that our greatest relational joys lie ahead of us. And that doesn't blunt the pain of loneliness, right? That doesn't make it not hurt when we are lonely. But it does assure us that this pain is for a purpose. Like, if you're working out, and as long as you have the proper form, right, you're not doing anything wrong to your body, as long as you have the proper form, if you feel pain, it's a good thing, right? Because it means you're doing something good for your body. And just like that, loneliness can be a good pain. It can point us to something beyond this life, to something better, to something longer, to something more important. So, the next time loneliness shows up, thank God for it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties, including loneliness, on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Like we said, the most important person in existence cares 
for you and is with you and is in you. So thank God that we have this reminder of what's coming. In fact, if I can challenge you, the next time you feel lonely this week or, or in the weeks to come, turn that loneliness into a moment of worship for God. Give it to him as a gift of worship for him. Tell him, God, I've tried everything to fill this void. I've tried people. I've tried busying myself with this life. I've tried seeking you, and it feels like nothing is filling this void in my heart. So I want to turn it to you and give it to you. And I want to see if you can take something that's this ugly and make it into something beautiful. Let your loneliness drive you to worship, to give your problems to God. And let him change those problems, change your perspective on those problems, and let you push through them to a better life, the one that's beyond this life. So let your loneliness be a reminder to you that God doesn't just want to do things for you, although he absolutely does. He wants to do things for you, but he wants to do something in you. He wants to do something with you, something in your life right now. He wants to create in you a deep, unshaking reliance on him. In so many ways, he wants to be the love of your life and of mine. He wants that relationship with us. So, repurpose your loneliness. And third, take on some responsibility. Take on some responsibility. This is what God did for Elijah, right? As poor Sam (laughs) read this morning. He had to go anoint some kings. He had to go take care of some business. He told him to get up, go, take care of business, get to work. And for us, we see them every day. And especially for us, we see them every Sunday and every Wednesday. They sit among us in the congregation, sometimes at the very heart of the body, sometimes on on its fringes, but they're here. They come to events and activities, hoping that maybe if they do enough and, and are enough and they come enough, they'll start to feel like they belong. For them, the times that we have inside of this building may be the only parts of this week that feel right, that feel like they should. They're the people who feel forgotten, neglected, and desperately lonely. They're the people who are depressed, disabled, socially awkward, grieving, elderly. If that is you, you are us. Not just that you are a part of us, like you're you're some kind of added part onto the people who really are us, but you are us. You make us up. And if that's not you now, it will be someday. Maybe for a long time, maybe for a short time. But keep that in mind, because it'll help you be empathetic. So, when you, came into, when you come into this room, if nowhere else, in this room, can we pray that we will have the eyes of Jesus, that we'll look at things through his eyes? Because I think if we do, we'll be amazed. Because when we look through his eyes... When we look at this room, any room, through the eyes of Jesus, we see things through the perspective of other people. It completely reorients us, right? Naturally, we look at things through our own eyes. We look at things from our own perspective, from our own priorities. But when we look at things the way he looks at things, we look at it through other people's eyes, through their perspective, through their priorities. It changes about our lives. So each time we gather together, we have an opportunity to be a son for the man whose own son won't have anything to do with him. Every assembly is an avenue to love the people of God with passion and devotion and sacrifice that most people reserve for their own flesh and blood. Every Sunday is a new opportunity to be a father to the teen whose own father isn't everything that he should be. 
We have this opportunity every time we come together. It's one of the main reasons why we do come together. Because we can fill that void for each other. If every happy, intact family among us took it upon itself to initiate toward and welcome the lonely, to make visible those people who feel invisible, even among us, what a joyful place our auditorium would be. Even more so than it already is. Because Mabelvale is really, really good at this, okay? But it's something that we all have to be intentional about every time we come together. We have to make visible those people among us who feel invisible. So when was the last time I strayed away from my, my little circle of family and friends and I set aside my to-do list or my plans or my social insecurities and I just talked with someone else who needs it more than I do? It's not always easy, but it's so important. And it's not just that the, the relatively happy and, and fulfilled people among us don't care, right? It, it may be that they just never notice, they're keeping children quiet, or they're, they're paying attention to the sermon, which, which I personally appreciate. So they're, they're doing one of those things, or they're, they're planning for, for lunchtime, or, or game time, or nap time. So it's not that we're bad people, but if Satan can't make us bad people, he'll make us busy people. Because busy people miss what's right in front of them, and the opportunities to serve other people that are right there. So, look around you this weekend, and the next, and the next, and love the lonely people among us with initiative and energy and creativity that they would never expect. Love them with a love that they don't get anywhere else. Because in this room, we have something that isn't anywhere else. We have the power of God enabling us to love one another supernaturally. So, God, give us eyes to see the lonely. Give us the eyes of Jesus. Give us all that responsibility toward each other. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, we find a kind of loneliness that even the things that we talked about tonight can't touch. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're without God, you're going to feel lonely in a way that someone with God never will. Without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. You don't have to understand all, all of what Paul just wrote to understand that Jesus is the answer to your loneliness in a way that nothing else ever will be. Because in him, we can be united into one body, into his body, which, as Paul says other, in other, another place in Ephesians, he is the head over. We can become part of him. So he is us. We are him. We can be added to his body. If you've never done that, it'll be the best decision that you ever make. 
Won't you do it as we stand and as we sing? It is a grand